This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to Talking Dirty. We are sort of back. We're doing a kind of experimental podcast to catch up with all the glorious things that have been going on at East Ruston Old Vicarage and some of the slightly less glorious things that have been going on in my poor neglected garden <laughs> and slightly less neglected allotment. Um, but we thought we would reconvene because, to be honest, we were both missing the podcast too much. <laughs> and we've apart from the baby who's not been missing it at all and uh, who's currently on my lap. But anyway, on with the introductions in case you've never watched one of these before. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Way over there in Cambridgeshire on this somewhat drippy morning. Well, it is a Monday after all. We have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson with baby Fio. Baby Fio. Fiola for anyone who's been wondering about the pronunciation, who we've decided to spare being on camera. So he's supposed to be falling asleep any moment now on my lap. We'll see how that goes. There may be the odd rough cut around a baby scream, <laughs> which is, I suppose, the uh, the synopsis of my life at the moment. I just might... had a thought this has become a family podcast. <laughs> It has. It has. Um, I I mean, no one, everyone's here for plants. No one really wants to hear extensive details of motherhood, but I'm having a marvellous time. It's everything I ever hoped it would be and much more. We got given the world's best baby. And uh, he is, I mean, you've met him. He did unfortunately cry when he met his Uncle Alan uh, properly. We He'd already met you once. When he met you for the second time, there, there were quite a few tears and grimaces, but teeth have been coming in. So we'll blame it on that. Uh, well, it could be anything. I mean, it could be, uh, well, he might be, well, I was going to say he might be afraid of loud colours, but then knowing his mummy, I doubt that he is. No, I tell you what, something really interesting I have learned by having a baby is uh, living in my body for nine months is the ultimate desensitisation for noise. This baby is <laughs> amazing. Dog barking, loud music, loud events. Uh, not that we've really taken to those, but he uh, he doesn't seem to bat an eyelid at all. We were very glad that they did the hearing test early so that we knew he didn't have a problem on that front because he just doesn't really respond to noises. I think um, we all know why. I'm not exactly the quietest person to be stuck with. So, <laughs> yes, so that's worked. It's worked in my favour. <laughs> loud colours and loud noises, not a problem for Fiola. But um, when he met you, I got a joyous day really walking around your garden we had lunch my partner Peter and I took Fiola to see as much of the garden as he could stay awake for and my goodness it was looking fabulous a few weeks ago now so I caught some things in peak which by now will be over but how fortunate was I to see the agave montana doing its thing that we've been waiting all year a whole kind of year for how um how amazing has it been for you to have this what second flowering in the UK happening in the desert wash? Well, actual fact, I, I need to correct you there because we've oh. got in contact with Kew Gardens and their records state that it is the first one to flower outside in the UK. Is it? Wow. I, I, I quite I quite understand that somebody might might sort of disagree with that. I don't mind if they do. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, there maybe there is one that has flowered. I don't know. 
before ours. But according to Q's records, we are the first. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, for people who don't, don't know... Think, I don't think it matters whether you're first or not. What matters <laughs> is that you've got the thing to flower because, you know, these this um, plant has been in that garden for 19 years. And in its 18th year, it decided to put up two flower spikes, scapes, and they looked like giant spears of asparagus. And you could almost watch them grow, you know, two or three inches a day. And then as the as the year wound down, 2022, as, as we were, as it wound down and we got towards autumn, the growth slowed and then it stopped. We get to winter and it stops. And um, of course, we know what happened during the winter. I mean, it was, this was going to be an anxious winter for us anyway, with these agave scapes there exposed to the wet weather and, and everything. And uh, when we had that horrible frost in December, Graham and I decided that we would not obey our dictum, which is not to wrap anything because this was too precious. We had to wrap these spears, uh, scapes. And so we did. And it was it was like it was like two old women out there with a with long bamboo canes and a nightdress trying to hang it over this thing, you know, <laughs> which we it? did. Was it four layers of horticultural fleece in the end? Yes, it was four layers of horticultural fleece. Um, and because we 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 got it over, the, I mean, what you've got to imagine and um, and realise is, of course, that the base of an agave is a hostile place because each one of those thick leathery leaves has got the most horrible spikes, piercing spike on the end of it. So you know, you lean forward and you, ah, don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Put it this way, it could be dangerous. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, we managed to get the these um, thing over the the fleece over the top of these two spears and tied it roughly and then hoped it wouldn't blow off and it didn't. Um, and so we managed to get it through the winter and then of course the whole thing starts again in 2023 when the weather starts to warm up and we get to April and May and suddenly the thing starts to grow again. And you're not quite sure at this point how tall it's going to be, but it did end up being around about 14 feet tall um, and these the scales peel back and the sort of branches on the flower head open and they're like cups that hold masses of these golden stamens. And one thing I found rather disappointing is the fact that it didn't last very long. And it's quite amazing because the whole desert has been awash with flowers this year, not just the agave, but I went up one day with um, uh, Natalie Grave Magda Television, actually, and we were looking at the pollination um, going on in the desert, and the agave was absolutely smothered with honeybees and hoverflies. And then uh, we went to look at another plant called a nalina, and the nalina um, is a bit looks a bit like a yucca, but it's it's much more pliable in leaf. Um, the nalina had a huge candelabrum of greeny cream flowers. Oh, must be six feet tall. The flower stem itself, you know, the, or the flowers themselves, and that was full of um, bumblebees. And coming down to a lower level, we got to a little puya, and puyas are hardy bromeliads that come from uh, South America. And that had a flower spike on. It's actually now it's got producing a second one, which is marvellous because the, the spike comes up and it has these kind of little branches going out. But net, on the stem, there are these three petaled flowers, um, most um, iridescent turquoise blue, dark turquoise blue. And then they have uh, the stamens are tipped with orange pollen on them. On them. And it just, it's such a contrast. It just looks so wonderful. It looks completely unreal. And in the in the wild, of course, they're they pollinated by hummingbirds. But 
our puya was being pollinated, believe it or not, by wasps. So there were three three separate plants in bloom, and they each had their own colony of pollinators, which was quite fascinating. I think the common denominator between all three was hoverflies, perhaps, but more so on the agave than on any of the others. It was a glorious moment to stand by the agave, looking up at it. I um, I would look at a photo to remind myself as I describe it, but um, the baby's got hold of my finger, so I can't um, <laughs> can't get to my phone. Uh, he he is nearly asleep, I think. Um, but, but to me, it almost. Do you remember when we did that wonderful podcast with Derry Watkins? It might have been our first, and I'll certainly link to it if I can find the right one. And she mentioned a plant called a bigaloia. Yes. And it almost looked like there were sort of bigaloias on a spike. Uh, yeah. It had it had that air about it, the agave yeah, montana yes. flower. And then to be able to turn not very far at all and see this extraordinary otherworldly poya flower in these glorious turquoise and orange tones, yeah. you just could hardly believe you're in Norfolk at that moment. And then, you know, oh, no, no. cast your eye over the desert wash and these fabulous foxtail lily plumes shooting up in gl- glorious apricotty colours and um, little starry Iphian or had a Tim Fuller say Iphian, uh, little starry yeah, plumes yeah. carpeting the yeah. floor oh, and obviously yeah. tons of Eschultzias. And, and of course, you've now got this extra bank to one side of the desert wash yeah. um, next to the corner. The Bund, B-U-N-D. <laughs> That's a great well, name. Well, the story of that is we had an, we had an enormous, we had, the, it's really a compost heap, but it got to be so big, I, I called it the Matterhorn. Um, because it was a, a it was a trial to get up to the top of it. Anyway, we got it moved over the winter, and we made this bund, this kind of bank behind the desert. So we'd want to transfer really from perhaps being, um, shall we say, um, uh, Arizona to South Africa, really. Um, and so the bund sort of does a kind of separ- it's a separating vein, if you like. And we planted it with lots of. Um, some South African plants, such as nephophias and and agapanthus, but lots of other things, um, if they looked if they looked right, and if we had them, I say if we had them because I mean it was a big big area, and to go out and spend hundreds of pounds just to carpet it in South African plants would have been perhaps silly. Well, in the light of what happens, of course it would have been silly because, as you know, Thordis, um that um, compost heap was a living. Uh, what what do I what would what would you call it a living um, repository I suppose yeah. it was it was like the Sleeping Beauty awake waiting to be awakened and because all the soil had been disturbed and we'd made these buns um, and we we'd sort of raked over them and all the rest of it and as spring wore on it, they became green and grey with seedlings masses and masses of seedlings and the the most well, I, I suppose the one that took over more, more, more than anything else was the opium poppy, Papava somniferum, in all its various colours. And some I'd never seen in the garden before, I have to say. Um, but, I mean, like everything else, the pollinators come along and they do their bit and you cross from one to the other. And as we all know, you know, um, seed-grown plants are genetically very slightly different from their parents. Um, and we have this marvellous array of poppies. Um, I mean, I couldn't have planned it better in a funny sort of way because underneath the poppies you've got your plants that you've planted um, and they're quietly chugging away getting their roots out and and hopefully it's settling in and starting to grow and then (laughs) over the top of this 
comes this great wash of poppies because they don't last long. I have to say that. And I mean, you know, we have now, I think we've got pulled, pulled the majority of them out. Not all of them, but I mean, the majority of them out because they, when they die, they don't do it with dignity. They, <laughs> they, they look rather unkempt. And so we had to, had to get rid of them really. And of course there were one or two thistles in, in between them that you can't get into because you'd spoil the display. And so we got rid of those as well. And so hopefully we won't have too many seedling thistles around next year. It was a wonderful uh, group of plants, though. Bits of red auric yep. scattered through as well. A lovely little pinpoints of dark purple. Um, mm. And obviously loads of Ascholtzias, uh, Californian poppies looking looking glorious. And I suppose it is really um, like a magic moment in time because the soil disturbance isn't going to happen again you're not necessarily, you know, I suppose some of them might have self-seeded, but it's not going to be quite that moment ever again because a lot of No, there won't be been... quite that, that that whole moment again. But I think what we'll do is, what, or what we'll get, we will get some um, re-germination because as and when we go into that, onto that bund and we plant things, of course you're disturbing the yeah. soil and you're bringing lower soil to the, to the top and so on and so forth. So you will get some something. Um, but it, it did actually force me to sort of try and look at um, saving some of the seed pods from lots of those sort of poppies um, and just going around a bit like Miss Wilmot. You know, Miss Wilmot's ghost which used to scatter the Eryngium seeds in other people's gardens, which I I, I gather is a pure myth anyway. Um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it is or whether it isn't, does it? Um, but I would be, be the ultra-generous Miss Wilmot with a with a paint carrying it, you know, those little paint pots with a, with a handle full of... <laughs> See, and I could be discussing it hither and yon. <laughs> if anybody gets a flood of papava somnifera, you wonder where you know where it came from. <laughs> For anyone who does like poppies, this is kind of an aside, really. Um, but it's well worth just having a look at all of the many and varied papavas out there because the world of the poppy is a glorious one. And if you like orange, obviously there are uh, tons of different orange poppies. I have one in my garden, which unfortunately I've sown too many different seeds for me to know which one it is, but it's a lovely double sort of orange poppy. Um, it comes back every year. It has could loads it of... Uh, could it be Papava rupifragrum? Possibly or Atlantica, maybe. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, it's... It's successively flowers over a, probably a month or more. And yeah. the, the flowers are just gorgeous. And um, sadly, it hasn't really self-seeded. It's a perennial plant, but it doesn't seem to have created any babies. Perhaps they haven't quite found their, their favourite nook yet. But um, that's that's wonderful. And um, I haven't had the time, obviously, yet to explore. I got distracted, but I, I <laughs> very much intend in my life to spend lots of time um, exploring all of the different papavas there are. Many, well, yeah, many. the other thing is to save your own seed, you know, because even even plants like the old Oriental poppy, Papava orientale, I mean, that it produces seed pods. And, you know, if you've got more than one colour, you will get intermediate shades. Um, who knows what you might get? I mean, it's, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? And of course, you know, I find the whole thing of, of, of saving seed absolutely thrilling. Um, I love it. I've got a... Oh, no, I don't know the name of this plant. I'm sorry. Um, it's new to me. And uh, it came from uh, the plantsman's preference, Tom, uh, Tim Fuller, lovely man. And it came from him. And it looks a bit like a, it's very low growing. It kind of creeps and it's quite succulent. So I don't know quite how hardy it is, but it has pale lemon dandelion type flowers. 
And it, it is rather nice, actually. It doesn't sound rather nice if I can compare it to a dandelion. But then <laughs> I'm one of those peculiar people that absolutely love dandelions. Yeah. I think at the beginning of the, uh, well, the middle of spring and you're driving down a country lane and it, you know, with sunlit verges either side, studded with bright yellow dandelions. Mm. I think it's a wonderful sight. I like I the pink ones too. Them, but I mean, you know. <laughs> and not a true dandelion, but um, whenever it was a couple of years ago that I grew crepis rubra, the sort of pink. Oh, crepis rubra, yeah. Lovely. I mean, obviously, it's, it's foliage isn't necessarily something to write home about, but the flowers were absolutely yeah. lovely. So I'd, I'd recommend that one. Um, and obviously the thing with uh, going back to, to poppies that they'll grow in in different situations so you think of them being these lovely sun uh adoring plants but then you get poppies for, for shade not least formerly mechanopsis but now um papava the the little yellow and orange welsh poppy um, oh, mechanopsis cambrica yeah that cambrica. and uh but did it change who knows did it change from mechanopsis to, to papava I don't know. But I don't know. It's still, I still know it's Mechanopsis cambrica. Um, but I mean, I remember, I remember, you see, that's one of those plants that I always feel if it's in a garden and it, it, you'll never lose it because it sells seeds. It, I mean, it's a bit incontinent, probably, really. I don't um, mind that. No, no. I, if no, you're that I don't pretty, know. I don't mind. But I remember them uh, having it first in the ordinary yellow form, then getting the orange form, then getting the double red form. Um, and you, you know, once you get the whole lot together, um, you get a whole array of colours, and they're just a bit like cyclamen heterifolium and drifts of Crocus thomasinianus, forget-me-nots by the score, 100,000, you know. They're, they're the sort of things that make a garden, to me, a garden. Um, yeah. You know, they're sort of verging on almost naturalistic plantings, if you like. I think it's lovely. Yeah, I adore them. I potentially did steal a pod from your garden when I was there last. What, what? <laughs> a Welsh poppy so oh, I could have you know yeah. East Ruston Welsh poppy in my garden yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact I would have stolen it from not uh just around the corner from your front door which I've got to say north facing situation just absolute showstopper well yeah I mean the front door has been looking pretty good I think um and I mean there's so many ideas that 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 come from it um and you know you kind of experiment with different plants every year because I like to vary the scene as it were um but let's just talk about the front door because the front door is on the north side of the house it doesn't have any overhead shade but it gets it's in a shady position. It doesn't get direct sunlight. In actual fact, at any time it gets sunlight, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of summer. It might get a little bit of, of sunlight. So it is a shade area, um, which a lot of people find very challenging. And so do I, I think. Um, but I love the idea of trying to find plants that like that situation. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of plants there that, I mean, do look pretty spectacular. One is um, an Acer, and um, it's called Acer something flamingo. And I can't remember the middle word now. Yes, I can. Acer conspicuum flamingo. Um, and it's a it's a it's a it's a weeping acer. And so what we've done over the years, we've had it quite a long time. And what we've done five years, I think, we've, we've it's growing in a pot, and we tie it up this cane every year. So as the top goes over, 
the cane goes up and the top comes up and it's tied to the cane maybe two or three times. So it increases the length of the leader. So the following year, the leader is set then at that in that position and the, the other growth then, and you gradually, what you're doing is you're making your fountain go up quicker than it would naturally. Um, so that's what we've done with them. And then they're these lovely cascading branches. Um, and the, the leaves are, well, they're gray green, uh, they're cream and they're pink. And the leaf stems are pink. Um, actually, in fact, I can see it from the window here now. And it is, I mean, the leaf stems are actually quite crimson looking. So they they kind of, from inside the plant, they the colour comes out at you, if you see what I mean. Um, and they they are looking really, really good. I'm, I'm so pleased with them. Um, Do you know sometimes- what? That, that planting, it's it's really reminiscent of the way that, that obviously everyone knows that you're a complete fashionista. I forgot to say that uh, for anyone listening to the audio version, currently in a very nice check shirt with a uh, matching combination of red jacket and red glasses, and also the king of combining patterns. You know, not many people could combine checks and spots and florals and have it look right, but you are. And actually, I think those that container planting combination by the front door is like the horticultural equivalent because you've got those lovely acer leaves and stems and then you've got the contrasting splodges of the podophyllum spotty dotty and we all know that i'm huge fan of that plant which sadly i lost this winter but yours are out of this world and then that also goes really well with your begonia luxuriance yeah sort of thin palmate sort of almost like little fingers sticking or big fingers sticking out yeah the planting and ferns it all works together so well the one thing I would say about that is that we have what we've done. We, um, I mean, our, our begonias there are luxuriants. They are probably six, seven years old, um, and they they overwinter in a, in a glass house um, to keep the foliage and stems keep them alive and everything. But they come out in the winter, and they are, shall we say, very discreetly supported. Because I mean, you know, the one thing that we do get sometimes is an awful lot of wind, and 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 wind can mess the stems up so you have to support them quite discreetly um but they are looking lovely I, i'm again i'm peeking out of them now because they've got big big chunky buds of little white flowers coming on them as well um but when you talk about do, do a, comp- a composition like that i think first of all you've got to dismiss flowers from your mind and look at the foliage because that is you you hit the nail on the head there that is exactly what you want the contrast of the foliage so you've got you've got colours you've got shape you've got size um, and we know you know and greens vary all the time anyway and I suppose the starting point would probably be the aces and then we come down a level to a hosta and it's the largest leafed hosta you can you can actually grow in this country and she is called Empress Wu and she must have been a very large lady i don't know <laughs> i didn't don't know of her at all um and then we come down again and we get to podophyllum spotty dotty and so you've got shall we say the begonia luxuriance in there as well so you've got a colored leaf you've got a green palmate leaf you then got these paddle-shaped grey-green leaves on the holster, and then you've got the spotty scalloped leaves, large leaves, as potty dotty. And spotty dotty has got quite a lot of yellow in the foliage, which you might not think, but she does. At least they're here. She does in those pots, and you've got that and the mottling, um, and it just looks lovely. And people are so surprised. I do um, guided tours. I've, I've done quite a few this year, actually. Um, you yeah, know, people. Yeah, um, people want to come and they want to know about the plants that you grow and how you grow them. And, you know, they, they want to further their knowledge, I think, as well. 
And I tell them to look, lift up the skirts of Putty Dot, uh, Spotty Dotty and look underneath. And there are hanging these deep maroon, funny-shaped flowers that have the most incredible scent. To me, it's the scent of um, metal. I don't, I, I can't put it any other way. It's, it's a very, very strange scent. Um, but to that, we've got ferns on the lower level as well, potted ferns like terrace. Um, and we have a begonia there called begonia richmondensis, which is a bit like a begonia semiflorens, which you might think, oh, that's a common old thing. Well, yes, it is, but you don't see it around much today. Um, but this is um, richmondensis is slightly bigger in its shape, and it's got a jagged green leaf with a bit of red on it. So that's there. And some of our impatiens too, the impatiens um, sardinii, which is a tall, big growing plant, um, and I've got several versions of it, and it's it's a wonderful thing to bed out in the, in the shade somewhere for, for for the summer. So there's all these things going on, and there are there's always plants in here that I'm seeing somewhere, and I think mm, that might do. I've got another one which I'm I'm going to experiment with, and it's it's known as the Alpine Club Club Moss, and it's Saliginella Saliginella. Um, and it is much like a mossy plant. I've got one in my orangery um, on the north facing wall. And it just it makes this just lovely sort of feathery mound. Um, I don't think it is a fern. I'm not sure what it is, but maybe it is a moss. Whatever it is, it's worth growing. <laughs> and I think that's going to have a position out there in future years. Yeah, it's so inspiring. Um, I have my north facing patio, which actually looked pretty good last year. It's not looking too bad this year, but it's uh, I lost a few things. Actually, things I I thought I'd lost. I hung on, hung on partly because I wasn't exactly in the the mood around March and April to be chucking things out. I was uh, busy with a, a tiny tiny baby. Um, but the uh, I've got a painted Japanese painted fern that I really thought had gone and it's come back, and so it's looking okay. But I definitely need to to channel some of that front door display you've got what do you um originally put in your containers because obviously you're, you're feeding them regularly but these plants oh, yeah. look so beefy and healthy well it's a combination actually i mean we've been challenged because of all this peat free thing that's going on and everything else at the moment so um uh i really can't find that um and there's any substitute for good old garden soil loam and uh, so we use quite a bit of loam. We use our own compost um, that we make, like the him the like your Matterhorn. Matterhorn, I was going to say the Himalayas, but the Matterhorn and the Bund. Um, so that's all good stuff. And I think that it, grit, potting grit. I put I always put potting grit into my compost. And for the past year, I've been using to try and open it up a little bit is vermiculite. So I'm using vermicula in my mixtures. I used to use it in certain potting mixtures for things that wanted good drainage, plants that needed good drainage and for seeds and things like that. And I now use it all the time because I need to get, try and keep the compost open. Um, and so really, I suppose it's that. And I think um, there's a wonderful product called Plant Grow that's produced in South Norfolk, which you know about. Um, and they are doing a range of, of products. They actually have um, um, a peat-free version of their compost now. Um, so I'm using a bit of that as well. And I mean, I must say that there's an awful lot of fuss and hype about peat-free compost at the moment. And, you know, you the general public, I think, are finding it very, very difficult to know who or what to believe. 
And I that is my reason, really, for incorporating garden soil into my compost. Now, I've got a big garden, as everybody knows, and so I have the luxury of being able to go out with a wheelbarrow and scoop up molehills, because molehills, the little gentleman in the black velvet jacket, he's done all the hard work for you because up comes the molehill, and you could, uh, if you actually see it happening, it's very... Because you, you see the soil bubbling up like this. It's almost like a volcanic eruption in miniature. And you see it bubbling up. And if you scoop that soil up, he's made it into this wonderful friable mixture. Um, now, if you use it neat, you're probably going to get masses of weed seeds, much like our bund, um, masses of weed seeds. Now, if I'm using it for, if I'm incorporating that into a seed mix, which I quite often do, I will sterilize it. And the way I sterilise it is I stick it in the uh, in one of the agar ovens in a big old meat tray, which I don't use for anything else. Are Leave it sure? in there. Yeah. <laughs> Never go around there for a roast. <laughs> also a bit gritty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just like to, I, I just leave it in the oven for an hour and then let it cool down, and I mix it with all the other ingredients I've got and everything else. Um, but I don't you know, have an agar, but I would just love to see Peter's face if he opened the oven and found <laughs> there was just a big tray of soil in there. <laughs> it's quite a fascinating thing to do, actually. I mean, if you've got, I mean, you know, if you've got children and if you've got an agar, I mean, you know, we get them interested in the school holidays and doing doing things like that. I assume so because obviously argus have different temperatures because it's a bit like if you're making compost and you're going to monitor the temperature, you don't want it to necessarily get too hot because then you'll destroy all the important microbial action. So yeah, there yeah. is this sort of delicate balance where you want to to sort of kill off some stuff, but very much keep alive other bits. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, mine is trial and error. I have to say, I have to be honest, no man's up because, you know, it is trial and error and um, it's not scientific, but I generally leave it in the, well, I've got four ovens. I've got a roasting oven, a baking oven, a simmering oven and a, a plate warming oven, you see. So you've got four ovens in the side of this central block. Um, and I put it in the baking oven just for about half an hour. It doesn't take any longer than that. I think if you left it in overnight, it would become a, it would become a barren, nothing sort of soil. Um, so you do want to have, you know, a few microbes in there and, and bits and pieces. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't have an argus, so fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I won't be tempted to. to the other thing is, of course, if you don't, if you do, if you want to use soil and you can't um, um, sterilize it and k- to kill weed seeds. You just have to know what you're looking for when the when the little seedlings pop out. Um, you, I mean, you get to know over the years what the what the, your seedlings that you purposely want to sow. You'll get to know what they look like, and anything else you just pull out. Mm. You see something intriguing, and you think, "Oh, that might be something good." <laughs> you might see something and know that it's something good. Well, do you know what I've had that in my front garden this year? So a couple of years ago, I was um, it was very nice. I went to see Steve Coghill at King's College, and uh, because he's one of the you know a gardener who doesn't like to send anyone away without plants, I came back with um, the Corsican hellebore, Argutifolius. Um, yeah. It's a great plant, and I've got it in the front garden. Um, and I'd had it for a couple of years and it was the first time I'd grown it. Very remiss of me. Never had one before. And so I'd never seen the seedlings. And then all of a sudden, these quite ominous looking seedlings started turning up around the front garden. One of them right, tiny, tiny strip of gravel underneath the front door. Um 
between a, a paving slab and the brick of the house. And uh, it's a slightly scary thing. And a few of them turned up and I thought, well, it's probably a weed because there are so many of them and it looks vicious. So, you know, I'll probably regret leaving them, but I don't know what it is. And I hate to pull out something I don't recognise. And so I left them and then suddenly had this moment of epiphany because obviously once it got a little bit bigger, you began yeah. to recognise the leaf and thought, wow, I've, I've gained extras. And now <laughs> I've realised by going to other gardens and paying more attention, clearly not been paying enough attention before, that of course they do. If you go to a garden and you find the parent plant, you'll often find babies uh, yeah. seeding around them. It's just, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd never have it happen before. You just give me an idea, you know. I mean, this is, this is what happens when you talk to fellow horticulturalists, gardeners, whatever. And I'm just sort of thinking, you said about your seedling hellebores. I remember driving from um, on the A47 from Norwich and seeing on a bank beside the A47, where obviously they've been doing some road widening at some point. And there was a Helleborus corsicus, or what do you call it? Argutifolius, is it now? It used to be called corsicus, yes. It used to be known as corsicus with the green flowers. And it's it loves the sun. And it was sitting at the top of this bank. Um, and I, two or three years later, I went and I said, look, there's a Helleborus along here somewhere. And there was a, just a, a sheet of them tumbling down the, the bank. I'm going to put some on my bank because I've got some seedlings in the Californian border opposite the desert. So if I put them on the top of the bund, they can... Yes, I will enjoy and jump down. <laughs> oh, that is lovely. I find self-seed is just the most exciting thing. Actually, at the um, the allotment, well, obviously, uh, you're probably going to get the odd volunteer potato. Uh, I have had so many volunteer potatoes. I didn't bother actually growing any potatoes. I dug out those that were in positions where they really got in my way and I left the other. So I've got a nice steady trickle of potatoes coming in because I yeah. just go and sort of dig up a plant as and when I want them. And a lot of them are fine. Um, but the, the real triumph of the self-seeder on my allotment is one absolutely colossal sunflower, which hasn't opened yet, but it is multi-flowered, which I'm delighted about. I'm not a big fan of enormous sunflowers that just do one dinner plate and nothing else but yeah. yeah multiple flowers forming it did go over in the winds because i hadn't staked it like an idiot or a busy person one of the two um so now it's got a massive stake and like a tree tie around it to keep it upright because <laughs> it's more like a tree than anything else and um, that has been the most exciting self-seeder to turn up on my um my little quarter plot and uh I'm looking forward. I'm kind of planting stuff in the hope that maybe next year I can get. I want chaos, really, at my allotment. I know they're supposed to be like your glorious veg patch, which this year is organised in these very neat diagonals of kales and lettuce and sunflowers. Um, but I, I quite like the idea of planting around little, well, or big self-seeding sunflowers think, yeah. and cornflowers and borage. I think that's a very sensible idea because if you if you if you make your um, veg plot into a jungle uh, with sort of paths that you can wander through and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a bit like um, who lives at Otter Farm? Mark, Mark Diacono, and down in Devon, he has a place called Otter Farm, and he has this wonderful sort of fruitful forest, really. Mm. And, and there's there's raspberries and there's all the kind of fruits that you'd expect to find, but they're grown in this informal way in a in a kind of woodland area. And I just think that is fascinating because I mean it just brings out the forager in you, doesn't it? Yeah. It's mm. it's there's just something, I mean, when we talk to to wreck a mystery, has probably quite a lot more organized than my allotment will ever be. But this idea of just a clump of calendula there. Or a, 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 I put various borage along the edge. I just mm. did sort of scattered seed around before he was born in March. And the borage has done fantastically. I mean, a few seed thrown down and really neglected. And 
big, boisterous plants absolutely smothered in those glorious blue flowers. So you um, realise one thing, don't you? That I'll have borage forever. (laughs) (laughs) That was the hope. I thought if I put them, actually, I've probably put them the the opposite side to the prevailing wind so they won't blow completely across the plot. But I put them along one side and I sort of hoped that they would drift across and turn up. And obviously I can... You're going to be a popular neighbour, Thoughties. That's a good point, actually. The person next to me is probably probably very angry about my... uh, We have, we have, we 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 have actually just started selling our own honey, because um, Katie, who looks after the, she has, she by invitation has her beehives on our uh, West Park, you see, East Park, and um, the bees are under eucalyptus trees, so they've got their own sort of sheltered area um, away from the garden because um, where people are tend to go, um, because bees can be a bit. Um, a bit stingy sometimes <laughs> especially if you get in their flight path they don't like it and so we've got i think about nine hives out there and we've started selling our own honey and one of the honeys is a borage honey it's a very clear pale golden honey and it is absolutely lovely and we've got a, a spring honey and a summer honey um all of which are slightly different flavors you know mm, well since uh since he was born i've been all about honey on toast so mm. send some of that borage honey my way. <laughs> yum, <laughs> yum, yum, yum. Um, and actually, talking of, um, of veg plots, I did get a lot of inspiration walking around yours. The, the diagonal planting, while I kind of joke about it being all formal, was lovely. just a lovely idea to see them in these yeah. sort of symmetrical diagonal lines. And uh, I, I feel like there should be a word for calendula envy, maybe kind of calendula, something like that, <laughs> because you just had this big strip of different strong oranges probably the odd buff one in there as well but those really indian prince type strong yeah. glorious uh oranges and we all know I love but you oranges. know the funny thing about those um pot marigolds is that a lot of people probably don't grow them as and i don't know why because they're the easiest of plants to grow i mean you know chuck the seed down and forget it i mean what we do we 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 grow them in plugs so we fill the plugs and we put a couple of seeds in each plug um plug area um and a module and then as soon as they're filled with the thing with roots we tip them out and put them either into a bigger pot if we want them for somewhere else and it's not ready or we just put them straight into the garden and and they're big enough then for you to see and not pull out and not be damaged by other other things but i do think there's, there's this great thing i mean you see vegetable gardens um well, I mean, lots of people have vegetables gardens. Of course they do. But I don't think they realise that, you know, vegetables and these, the kind of flowers that you grow with them are there for a purpose. Um, and it's not just for pollinating. It's also to gladden the heart of the person that has to be working in the in the vegetable garden. And I, I think, and well, it comes from Granny Grey, really, because Granny Grey had at the um, typical cottage garden, then there were flowers, there were fruit and there were vegetables. Um, and they were probably all in rows and things. Um, and Granny Gray's fruit cage was, um, it was this short posts and then bars of wood, uh, strips of wood across the top and a, and a fisherman's net pulled over the top, which was you know, to keep the birds out. And she had this in, in, in well, I thought it was ingenious at the time. It's probably very simple in a way, but you know, if I go back to my childhood, nothing was uh, thrown away. Everything was recycled or reused. Um, and one of the things that uh, she used to do is keep her glass jars. 
And she would, I mean, there's like a two kilner jar or two pound jar, shall we say. Um, she would keep wash it, keep it clean, obviously. And when the strawberries were flowering, she'd wait until the the, the strawberry flowers had been fertilised and then she would wriggle that truss into the jam jar. And in other words, you're putting it into a little frame so it heats up and it gives you a little bit of earlier fruit. Yeah, it was just one of those. I inherited several strawberry plants, so who knows? I also hoard jars with the best of them. So (laughs) next season, (laughs) (laughs) next season, I can give that uh, give that a try. Um, The the lovely thing for me uh, because it's I've I've had quite a lot of of lettuce, quite a lot of uh, come come again and. Actual whole lettuces and things have been very exciting and coriander and stuff that I sowed and fleeced just before he was born. But the the really wonderful thing to harvest has been sweet peas. Never had the situation in the room to do a, a proper planting of sweet peas. And they weren't that successful because I didn't sow them early enough and most of them got eaten. But fortunately, the grass on the path of the allotment just over overhung and covered up a few sweet peas on the edge of uh, the lathyrus Earl Grey that I was very excited about growing and a few from a pack of Chilton Blue Shades mix, I think it was called. And so the birds didn't see those or pull them out. And so round one side, some of my original sown seeds actually grew and the other side, I kind of planted a a couple in to try and level it up. And it's been wonderful. Earl Grey is a lovely streaky kind of violety purple. Um, Hello, you like that one too. Uh, A lovely streaky flower. So I um I was delighted to get these big, um, big healthy plants and the garden centre ones I planted on the other side, as you might expect from a, a you know just a bog standard garden centre mix. They're little piddly stems compared <laughs> to the wonderful cut flower stems on things like the, the blue shades mix and the Earl Grey. So it was really interesting to see them sort of side by side. Um, scent wise, I'm not sure there was a huge amount in it, but certainly cut stem. Uh, I noticed. I have resolved. I have resolved when growing sweet peas next year not to be so greedy because I was greedy. Because um, dear friend Eric, who I see on a weekly basis, he came to the garden last year and he said, "Would you like some of my self-saved sweet pea seeds?" And I said, "Oh, I'd love some, thank you." So I I see next week he brought me the seeds in and I put them somewhere safe. Could I find them? (laughs) I I was hunting around for these seeds and it wasn't until after Christmas that I found them. And they were in the greenhouse. They were in a very damp area. And the bag is a paper bag. And I looked inside and they were all shooting. And I thought, oh, my goodness me, I've, I can save these. So I pinched them out, that little clumps of them, put them into pots, covered them with soil. Up they popped and hey, presto. But I think my my I was over generous with, shall we say. And I think that because my stems were never that long this year. And I think I didn't water them enough or, or whatever. But I mean, we've had masses and masses of sweet peas for cutting, but all, all with short stems. So I think um, next year I'm going to be like more reticent, perhaps. Oh, hello. <laughs> he's, and got a, <laughs> he's got a lot to say about sweet peas. He's actually been very... Uh, very intolerant of the allotment um, until the other week when he fell asleep. I put this on my Instagram. You might have seen it. Um, fell asleep for a whole hour. I walked up there. He stayed asleep. And I managed to weed, water, harvest. I came back with beans and potatoes and carrots. It was it was marvellous. I felt like I was really living the good life. <laughs> <Mother>. <laughs> 
Now, I have a whole array of other things that we'd like to talk about, but I think when when you you have to quit while you're ahead and detect <laughs> when things are about to maybe go downhill and somebody needs some attention. So maybe we should reconvene for another one of these chats and we will try, as soon as I've figured out a new schedule, we'll try and get our, our regular podcast back up and running with all of our fabulous guests because we've got such a long list of people we want to catch up with and talk plants. And talk plants. Talk classic. <laughs> yes. Don't forget it. <laughs> Until next time, whenever that may be. Happy gardening, everybody. Happy gardening, everybody. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.